this decree and the announcement uh, did not result from any consultation with Alevis themselves. The key problem is Turkey's failure to institutionalize equal citizenship and freedom for and from religion for its entire population. Hello, and welcome to the USERV Spotlight Podcast, a podcast series by the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each episode, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, Will we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. My name is Keely Bakken, and I'm a supervisory policy analyst at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Today, we'll be discussing the Turkish government's announcement to create a new state institution, the Alevi Bektashi Culture and Gemavi Directorate. Officials say this agency will oversee and address issues faced by Turkey's Alevi community, a group that constitutes the country's largest religious minority and has faced persistent obstacles in the exercise of their religious freedom. Announced in early October, the decision was enacted and entered into the official gazette on November 9th. The decision has generated controversy as the government itself has long refused to accord Alevis the recognition and rights that it has granted to other communities. Alevis have struggled to obtain status for their Jemavis as places of worship, objected to required school religion courses that disproportionately favor Sunni Islam, and often encountered discrimination, threats, and attacks against their members. Moreover, many observers view this latest announcement as a politically motivated maneuver intended to win over voters ahead of presidential and parliamentary elections due to be held by summer of 2023. USERF has regularly covered Turkey in its annual reports and other publications and has recommended for some years and most recently in our 2022 annual report that the State Department place Turkey on its special watch list for the Turkish government's severe violations of religious freedom. User staff had the opportunity to travel to Turkey in March of this year to hear directly from a variety of religious and non-belief communities, including Alevis, about continued challenges for religious freedom in Turkey. I'm joined today by Icon Erdemir, who is the Anti-Defamation League's Director for International Affairs Research. He is also a former member of the Turkish parliament and serves as a steering group member of the International Panel of Parliamentarians for Freedom of Religion or Belief, or IPP Forb. Icon, thank you for joining me today on Yusuf Spotlight. Thanks for having me. So to start, can you give us an overview of the government's announcement and now creation of a state-run Alevi institution? Why has the government decided to go this route? And what, if anything, will the establishment of this institution accomplish? And critically, how have Alevis reacted to this decision? As it is often the case with all similar initiatives in Turkey, this caught the public by surprise, uh, given this was a sudden development uh, that um, did not necessarily begin with a long consultative process uh, with the key stakeholders. Uh, so when Erdogan visited uh, you Shah know, Sultan, Cemevi, you know, Alevi worship place in Istanbul. Uh, 
while he was inaugurating four new Alevi worship halls, again, namely Jemevi's, and announcing the, the foundation laying of seven others, he also uh, presented the news that there is going to be a new directorate, a directorate of Alevi Bektashi culture and Jemevi. Uh, now, this uh, hits close to home for me because this is the same Jemevi where 25 years ago, as a young graduate student, I started my research on Alevis. So I know the site very well. It has a long history with all the ups and downs uh, of the challenges Turkey's Alevi and Bektashi communities have experienced. And uh, when the decree, when the presidential decree was published in Turkey's official gazette, uh, Turkey's various Alevi and Bektashi organizations and umbrella organizations reacted to it. And there were several lines of pushback. Uh, one was uh, that this decree and the announcement uh, did not result from any consultation with Alevis themselves. Uh, although the Turkish president in his announcement stated that 1,585 Jemevis were visited by authorities and Turkey's Ministry of Culture and Ministry of Interior, uh, you know, carried a long preparation phase uh, until the announcement. Uh, but Alevis did not seem to agree. And uh, when I checked their press releases uh, and uh, watched footage of their protests around Turkey on October 13th, there were a couple of main themes. Some claim that this is the final nail in the coffin of Alevism, as the Turkish state is trying to impose its own version uh, of religion on them. Some argued this was a state attempt to take over Alevi worship places, which they argued were built entirely with Alevi funds, and hence the state should have no jurisdiction or you know, rights over them. And they also claimed that uh, this initiative denied uh, the worship hall uh, quality of Jemevis, and hence they had bills saying Jemevis are worship hall. And they also had posters saying we will not give up our demand of equal citizenship, which was a reference to the fact that they saw this as uh, institutionalizing differential treatment of Alevis not as equal citizens with equal rights, but uh, as you know, minorities who can only be tolerated at a lesser level uh, you know, through the Ministry of Culture, which to them signified uh, recognition of Alevism not as a faith, but only as a culture, which in their view is a lesser category. My own take you know, uh, from an academic and policy position is that I think there were several reasons why the Turkish government took this path. That is, instead of, for example, trying to position this new Alevi directorate under Turkey's Directorate of Religious Affairs, uh, they went for a Ministry of Culture formula. Uh, I'm sure they were wary of an Alevi pushback because in earlier government periods, we have seen and Alevi resistance to be incorporated into the Directorate of Religious Affairs, which they see as a, a Sunni Muslim monolith organization. 
Second, I'm sure that the government also feared the Sunni clergy's pushback because again, in earlier attempts, we have seen various uh, Diyanet, you know, directors of religious affairs officials push back against such attempts. And also, I think ultimately the government also calculated uh, the need to incorporate Alevis not as a faith, meaning not at the same level as Turkey's Sunni majority, but as a culture uh, that could be accommodated and hopefully co-opted under the ranks of the Ministry of Culture. So I think as of this day, it is fair to say that uh, this initiative has not necessarily been embraced by a vast majority of Turkey's umbrella Alevi federations. Uh, and, uh, and ultimately, maybe the, the one good question to ask at this point is what uh, a long-time Alevi scholar of Alevism, Reza Yildirim, uh, asks, you know, how will the Alevis in Turkey establish a relationship with the state without their, without leaving their faith outside of this relationship? Well, I mean, it's certainly a surprising decision because as, you know, we've each kind of mentioned and touched on, the problems faced by Alevis in Turkey are, are by no means new. And so one other thing I just want to bring into the conversation too is the timing. Um, this announcement comes on the heels of a spate of violent attacks against Alevi places of worship and associations just earlier this summer. And this is something Yusuf has regularly reported on these kinds of attacks against Alevis in our annual report chapters. So my question for you is, what is the Turkish government doing in this sense to protect Alevis and other religious minorities and prevent these kinds of attacks? So to remind our audiences, um, over the summer, uh, Turkey has experienced uh, a number of attacks targeting Jemevis, you know, often coordinated attacks, which alarmed uh, the Alevi community, uh, given some of the violent attacks and pogroms targeting Alevis uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, so when those attacks took place over the summer, President Erdogan paid a visit to the Hussein Ghazi Jemevi in Ankara during the month of Muharram, a holy month uh, for the Alevis. Uh, but that visit uh, did not necessarily end on a positive note when it was revealed that ahead of the visit, uh, some of the devotional paintings uh, of you know, Imam Ali and uh, Hajibek Dashveli were removed uh, from uh, behind President Erdogan uh, and some of the, the, the board members of that worship hall were not actually invited to that meeting. Uh, so uh, that meeting did not necessarily reassure Alevis about you know, the, the government approach to this whole issue of uh, various threats targeting Alevis. And what we see uh, when it comes to such hate crimes is that there is often quick police response, which is a positive, but such quick police response is often not followed up by a rigorous prosecution uh, process that uh, goes after the culprits uh, to the full extent of the law. And we often see a lenient treatment, uh, which adds up to a culture of impunity and uh, one could argue that this results from 
the lack of a comprehensive hate crimes bill in Turkey. Uh, you know, during my time in the Turkish parliament, I was one of the co-drafters of Turkey's first hate crimes bill. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that to this day, there still is not a, a comprehensive political and legal framework for the implementation of an effective hate crimes framework. And in fact, um, we often see a failure to use even the existing articles in the criminal code to go after the culprits. And we also see that the current hate crimes articles are often used as, as a blasphemy law for the protection of the majority faith in Turkey and for the suppression of minority expressions rather than protecting minorities themselves. So ultimately, I think uh, one issue concerning not only our ladies, but also other religious minorities in Turkey is uh, that there is not only a culture of impunity, uh, but also a pretty uh, common practice of hate speech and incitement by Turkish officials, as well as by the Turkish public, and often uh, amplified through social media. So as long as such hate speech and incitement continue, uh, I think it would be fair to assume uh, that such similar attacks will continue to take place, taking advantage of the country's culture of impunity. Well, that's a great point to transition to my next question, which is you know, many of, of these types of issues and concerns that we've discussed so far today are not just limited to the Alevi community. So can you share in more detail for our audience how many of these religious freedom violations extend to and affect other religious and non-belief communities in Turkey more broadly? Now, I think the key problem is Turkey's failure to institutionalize equal citizenship and freedom for and from religion for its entire population. Now, the leading issue there is, of course, the legal status. That is the lack thereof for Turkey's religious communities. So there are differential regimes concerning different communities. First of all, the majority Sunni Muslim community uh, enjoy uh, not only a privileged position, but at the same time, uh, they also enjoy access to great resources through the Directorate of Religious Affairs, namely the Diyanet. Uh, some of the, what's called the Lausanne minorities, that is Turkey's uh, Jewish, Greek Orthodox, Armenian Apostolic, and at certain times, Syriac communities uh, could enjoy, again, uh, certain limited privileges, uh, which at times could turn out to be a disadvantage, uh, but uh, they at least have certain rights, which non-Lausanne minorities do not necessarily have. And um, the, the lack of an egalitarian and inclusive uh, regulatory framework then turns out to be a kind of a, a long-term impediment uh, for enjoying uh, a wide range of uh, religious freedoms. This could include um, the ability to own 
or utilize property, to repair property, uh, to you know, run uh, faith communities, uh, nonprofit organizations without outside or state interference, the ability to uh, train clergy, uh, educate uh, you know, minors in their own faith uh, uh, through the, uh, you know, the school system. Uh, as, as well as, um, you know, establishing a, a, a mode of relationship with the state that is built on equality and rights, as opposed to what is the case now, that is uh, one of benevolence and tolerance. And what I mean by that is uh, Turkey's religious minorities uh, have come to accept the fact that uh, they have a lesser status in Turkey and the best they can expect from this system, this regime of governance, is a, a benevolent and tolerant treatment by the majority community and the government that represents it, rather than you know, constitutional guarantees built on uh, both uh, you know, Turkey's you know, very own rights and freedom system, as well as the international conventions that Turkey uh, are a party to, including the European Convention on Human Rights. So ultimately, I would argue that the key challenge is uh, how to transform Turkey's differential system uh, of treating different communities into an egalitarian system that treats all faith communities equally and respects uh, their rights and freedoms stemming from the Turkish constitution as well as Turkey's international obligations. So shifting gears a bit and, and looking ahead, I mean, this promises to be an interesting year for Turkey given the upcoming elections. And we've already seen some politicians wade into and raise certain religious issues. So what would you say these elections portend for religious minorities and religious freedom? Now, elections are always difficult times for faith communities, especially minority faiths. Uh, first of all, we see that populism is on the rise in Turkey as it is also around the world. We also see in Turkey a dramatic rise in xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment. And this goes hand in hand with Turkey's economic crisis, you know, hyperinflation and currency meltdown. Now, one could easily see that this is a bad mix for freedom of religion or belief. That is, th this is really a, an opportune uh, moment uh, for uh, hate speech and hate crimes, for incitement, uh, for populist rhetorics that scapegoat minority faith communities, vulnerable faith communities. And we have already seen uh, some anti-Alevi and anti-Semitic conspiracies and disinformation. I think it would be fair to assume that in the run up to the June 2023 parliamentary and presidential elections, we will see an intensification of disinformation and conspiracy theories and hate speech. And I think uh, we are also likely to see some of these dynamics uh, feeding off one another. That is, 
you know, xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment and, and other forms of populism could easily uh, feed into, uh, you know, an, an anti-minority sentiment or a scapegoating of certain faith communities. Uh, and we have, just to give you a concrete example, uh, we have already seen how these different dynamics uh, intersect. For example, there was a recent attempt uh, to codify uh, legally uh, the, the religious right of women uh, to wear, you know, headscarf, uh, the religious attire. And that debate has ended up in a more complex debate that included calls uh, for restricting uh, the rights of Turkey's LGBTQ communities. So uh, there, there has been an attempt uh, to uh, create a hierarchy of rights or false dichotomies that presents, for example, uh, religious rights or uh, freedom of religion or belief as being mutually exclusive of other rights and freedoms. Uh, so I think um, Turkey's election climate uh, intensifies uh, such risks uh, as uh, these difficult uh, agendas uh, are being juxtaposed uh, and uh, exploited uh, by uh, populist opinion leaders. Well, and Yusuf has noted very little progress for religious freedom issues in Turkey, um, as I know you well know, Icon. Um, but at times we've seen the Turkish government state its intention to address religious freedom issues, such as those faced by Alevis and notably from earlier this year, the, the long awaited issuance of regulations for religious minority foundation elections. How do you assess the Turkish government's willingness to engage or address any of its longstanding religious freedom issues? In my experience as a, you know, a scholar of uh, the religious field in Turkey for almost three decades, um, my observation is that religious freedom issues, especially those concerning minority faith communities, have been driven not by domestic dynamics, by internal politics, but often by international dynamics. So for Ankara, uh, not only for Turkey's successive elected governments, but also for Turkey's civil servants, these issues are first and foremost a, a, a diplomatic matter. I know that sounds ironic given the individuals and communities we're talking about are almost all indigenous, you know, Turkey's own native communities and faiths some of whom have existed uh, in this land for millennia. But nevertheless, uh, for Turkey's decision makers, um, the risk of international shaming or the risk of an uh, you know, adversarial European Court of Human Rights court rulings or uh, some public Western criticism could be more important than what Turkey's own citizens have been demanding or what Turkey's own constitution has stipulated. Uh, so often uh, steps uh, for reform uh, 
uh, have been taken, for example, as part of Western conditionality, for example, as part of Turkey's, uh, back in the days, European Union harmonization reforms, or uh, they were, those steps were taken as spectacles of tolerance, that is, as these spectacles that would demonstrate to Turkey's Western allies uh, that uh, Turkey has a better, you know, practice than what is often uh, criticized uh, in reports. Or even worse, these steps could be taken as part of an understanding of reciprocity. For example, Turkey often sees the fate of its own Greek Orthodox citizen as contingent upon, you know, their rights and freedoms as contingent upon the way in which Ankara perceives Turkish Muslims to be treated in Greece. And in fact, I remember one interview, uh, you know, more than a decade ago when a, a Christian Turkish citizen uh, said, we are not hostages to be bartered. So he said, we're, we're equal citizens. So our rights and freedoms should not be contingent upon how Turkey's neighbors are treating their own minorities. And um, if, if, if we go even further, you know, even beyond reciprocity, we have also witnessed you know, recently attempts to barter Pastor Andrew Brunson and North Carolina pastor, uh, you know, uh, as uh, basically as a, 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 a chip in bilateral relations and negotiations. So uh, often uh, minority faith communities and their members could find themselves uh, in uh, policy debates and transactions that revolve not on rights and freedoms or national and international law, but more as part of transactional deals and negotiations. And of course, needless to say, these steps, these policy steps uh, have often been taken you know, over the decades without any meaningful consultation at home, including uh, with proper consultation uh, with uh, those communities in question. Uh, and we have seen this uh, recently, for example, with the, uh, the regulations concerning religious minority foundation board elections. You know, after, you know, many years without proper regulations, that is after many years during which Turkey's minority foundations were not able to elect uh, new members to vacant board positions, uh, you know, the Turkish government, you know, again, issued a decree that uh, for many of these foundations were not an ideal situation. And that often resulted from the lack of any meaningful consultation. So overall, you know, my recommendation would be uh, to, of course, begin always with consultation, uh, respect Turkey's own constitution and international commitments and move from an understanding of benevolence and tolerance and instrumentalism to an understanding of equal citizenship and embrace of pluralism uh, in, in, in the true sense. And ultimately, uh, I think uh, Ankara's respect for Turkey's obligations resulting from its own constitution 
and various international treaties, including the European Convention on Human Rights and the successive rulings of the European Court of Human Rights, I think will be key to uh, assuring uh, the, the widest range of rights and freedoms for all of Turkey's citizens, regardless of their faith and uh, belief or non-belief. And on that note, we'll have to leave it right there. I'd like to thank Icon again for joining me to discuss these recent developments in Turkey. You can find this year's annual report chapter on Turkey and our recent policy recommendations on our website. Thanks for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time on Yusuf Spotlight. Thank you for having me.